Welcome to Fostering Our Faith podcast. Today's guest, Carrie O'Toole, is an attachment-based intervention specialist, board-certified Christian life coach, certified crisis responder, and founder of Carrie O'Toole Ministries. She uses her coaching, writing, speaking, podcasting, and documentary film to help others overcome issues related to attachment trauma and grief. Listen in as she shares her expertise on reactive attachment disorder. Carrie, welcome to Fostering Our Faith podcast. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. So it's so funny. I Googled like leading authority on reactive attachment disorder. A friend of mine was just having issues with her daughter. And so I came up, it popped up as Carrie O'Toole. And I was like, oh, well, there she is. That must be the woman. Um, it was the first, <laughs> first and only name that came up. Um, so reactive attachment disorder is also known as RAD. And I would say that you might know something about this topic. So can you tell us how this became such a prevalent thing in your life? Well, yes, it was certainly not something I knew about until I knew, <laughs> if that makes any sense. It was not something I was looking for. It would not have been something that I was drawn to or decided to research. This came about because um, my husband and I, we adopted two of our kids. One um, was an infant or a newborn adoption. We were actually at the hospital when he was born and that was an amazing story. And we brought him home straight from the hospital. Um, the other one we adopted from an orphanage in Vietnam when he was between three and a half and four. And, you know, so we had gone through, uh, by the way, also, I have a brother who was also adopted from Vietnam. And that was kind of what, you know, sparked the interest in us. I remember even when my husband and I were engaged, we were talking about, you know, how many kids we wanted to have and all of that. And I said, oh, someday we should go to Vietnam and adopt, you know, because that was my story and my family's story. So, and, and for the most part, that had gone pretty well, you know. <laughs> so here we are, we've adopted a newborn. And by the way, I don't want to leave out my daughter. I have a biological daughter as well. My older two are just 15 months apart. And then when they were about seven and eight, um, they actually came to us. They'd sort of tag teamed us. And it's like, hey, we want another, we want a brother. And I was, we had gone through infertility and miscarriage and everything. And so I was kind of like, you guys, mom's body doesn't work that well. And they're like, oh, gross. You know, <laughs> we don't want to know anything about that. In fact, all we want, we don't even want a baby. You know, we want a little brother ready to play, ready made. And we're like, oh, okay, well, we need to pray on that for a little bit because that is not where we're thinking. But anyway, we ended up going to Vietnam and, you know, the only, I had heard some horror stories about older kid adoption, um, but mainly what I had heard, now we adopted back in 2000, so this is a while ago. Mainly what we had heard was something about kids from Russian Bloc, Eastern Bloc countries that somehow we're having trouble attaching and bonding. And so when we were looking at adopting, I specifically said to the agency, you know, the one thing I don't want to have to deal with is this attachment stuff, whatever this is, you know? And they said, oh, well, when you go to Vietnam, they treat them just like family there. So, you know, you're not gonna have any problems. Well, we get to Vietnam and I don't know too many families who have like 30 kids in a room 
you know, with one or two adults. But that's not really what most families are like. And you start realizing that none of these kids have gotten the care that they need as hard working as the workers are, you know, I'm not discounting what they have done. That is not normal. And babies need bonding from, from conception, <laughs> really babies need bonding because if, if mom has either um, mental health issues or, or is steeped in, in fear and anxiety, even through the pregnancy, that baby is, I want to say cooking <laughs> in cortisol. And that is not good for a baby's brain. They, the baby needs to be as calm and um, peaceful as, as they can be through a pregnancy, which is hard anyway. But when you add in mental health issues, when you add in drug or alcohol issues, when you add in um, chaos in the mom's life, that sets the baby up to not do so great. And then if you bring them into a, an orphanage type setting, or for you guys, you know, you're talking about foster care, um, depending on when all of this, the transitions take place, depending on how safe the child was in the home, depending on all of these different um, factors, that these make a huge difference in the brain of a child, because what we discovered was you know, the very one thing that I didn't want to deal with was exactly what our son was suffering from, and it was called reactive attachment disorder. And what that meant was his brain was literally wired around chaos. His brain was wired around trauma. His brain was wired around abuse and neglect. And so the, the way he responded to things was like flipped upside down. Anytime I would try to comfort him or parent him the way I parented the other kids, it was like something got flipped. And I realize now what it was, he was in constant PTSD. He was in constant trigger mode, which with my son, the way it played out was in kind of fighting, you know, it can go to fight or flight or freeze, whatever. Sometimes he would freeze, but a lot of times it was just this arguing and, and fighting over the dumbest little things that to him felt like life or death. You know, he, he needed to be in control of everything <laughs> and if he wasn't in control he would do whatever he had to do to get in control and we realized later it was just truly survival he, he was in just a survival place all the time but we had no idea that this was even a possibility i mean we had already parented one adopted child and he was doing just fine and so then this other little one comes in and we just kept thinking, okay, we know it's going to take some time. I mean, we, we think about it now. It's like, did we even do the right thing? Cause we look at it and it's like, we ripped him out of his culture. We ripped him out of his language. We ripped him away from every person he knew and everyone who looked like him and brought him here into a completely strange place. And they were very, they were not helpful at all in the transition. I kept asking people in Vietnam, would you please tell him that we're going to bring him to America? He's going to live with us. He's going to have a room in our, you know, all these kinds of things. I was trying to just help him a little bit. And they would just look at me and they'd say, he's just a child. 
like we don't talk to kids here <laughs> until they're older we don't even talk to them so we hadn't even been home a couple of weeks when I already had an attachment therapist lined up and we started I drove an hour every week to get to this guy and an hour each way every week and over the first couple of months, you know, he was just giving me pointers and, and helping me get my body calmed down because I, you know, from the traveling and everything, I wasn't sleeping. And he's like, okay, you're in crisis. We got to get that calmed down before we can even deal with this little boy. And, um, but as time went on, you know, six months go by and nine months go by and a year go by and everybody keeps thinking it's just going to settle in. Uh, we'll be all right. Just give it enough time. Let him know that he can trust you. And I had never heard of anything. I had never heard of a child that just couldn't trust based on their past. That wasn't in my <laughs> my language. Like I, I didn't have any experiential dealings with anything like that. And so, you know, it was just the strangest type of thing. And, you know, if you want to ask me more questions about what it was like or whatever, but that's kind of how I started understanding that there was such a thing called reactive attachment disorder. Like, what is this beast that we're dealing with? I'm not talking about my son. I'm talking about the disorder. What is this that we are dealing with? Because it's not getting better and it's tearing our family apart and no one seems to understand it. And in fact, let me just share this story with you. I was seeing one counselor and she was the most helpful. She didn't have a lot of help for the rad. She had help for me in like how to get myself healthy and strong so that I could withstand whatever was going on. But she had heard about a conference about an hour and a half away from me that was just a day long thing. And it was a training for counselors about rad. And she said, why don't you go? Well, at this point, I, I didn't have a master's degree like I do now. Um, I was just a mom. So I went and it was the strangest thing because through that day, people started to understand that I was actually parenting a child with rad. And here's all these counselors. And I sort of became the guinea pig. They were like, is, is it really like this? Well, what, what does he do? How does that play out in your family? What? And I was sitting there thinking, oh my word, you are the people that I'm going to for help. And none of you know anything. <laughs> and you're asking me, <laughs> what, where am I supposed to go with that? So that's kind of how I became aware of reactive attachment disorder. Wow. And I'm sitting here taking notes and how you started off is literally how I think about this whole topic is that if you know, you know, you just don't know unless it's in your world. And I mean, right. it's the same thing like with us, we have a son that's on the spectrum. I mean, for so long, we had kids come in and out of our church, you know, and we're like, oh, you just need a discipline. You need this. And then, <laughs> you know, and now, now we have a special needs ministry in our church because we're like, oh, wait a minute, hold on. This is not a discipline issue. This is, you know, this child simply cannot, he cannot right. sit for 45 minutes. He cannot have glue or scissors, you know, or all these things that, you know, neurotypical children can have. And so if you don't know, 
Yes. So and thank God that there are more people who understand about autism and Asperger's and all of those things these days, because, you know, I the way that I kind of look at it is that's kind of where rad was or I mean, I'm sorry, where autism was maybe 20 or 30 years ago. Nobody knew. Nobody understood. It's starting to be more understood now. And so parents aren't being villainized and, you know, the kids aren't, it's not like you're just a bad kid or whatever. We're recognizing that. Rad is so much less known about and, um, and that's part of the problem because even in the, the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that helps therapists to um, diagnose kids with rad, it says it's extremely rare. Well, I have an entire ministry built around this and helping the parents of all these extremely rare kids where it's, you know, it's not that rare, let me tell you. And, and the reason it's not that rare is because if any of us were put into that situation as a, a preborn or as a newborn or up through the first three years of life, that, that is what happens to these kids' brains. This disorder happens. So how many kids are there that this is happening to? That's how many kids there are that have RAD. So one question I have for you is how much of an impact would you say neglect in, let's say, the first week of life? Do you think that would have a very big, a very big effect? Well, what they say is it's the first three years of life and it's typically like the consistency of it. So if there is a a primary caregiver because usually we it normally it's mom but not always but a lot of you know in the first week of life that's typically mom you know that rad can develop even from like medical trauma from separation from mom from being in intensive care for you know in a neonatal unit for weeks um or months that I mean, imagine babies are born and the first thing they're supposed to do is be put on mama's chest and have that chest to chest and start feeding and know that they're safe and get looked at in the eye and start to hear the voice they've been hearing through the womb for nine months. And they know that feel of her walk and they know that smell and they know that all of it, they, they know her. And so they're supposed to meet her and be safe with her. And so when that doesn't happen, you know, I they don't have language. They don't they don't have any way to process this. I just kind of can imagine that these little babies are just like, "Huh? What just happened? That's not right. Like where is she? I'm not safe." And it's all about safety at that point is are my needs being met? So I imagine in in the orphanage like with our son, you know, he was born in a hospital. What we heard was that um, bio mom checked into the hospital to deliver him and left without him. And so they, they took him immediately to a, an orphanage where he was fed. We don't know if he was fed enough or regularly. We don't know if his diapers were changed as much as he needed. We don't believe he was held much because we were at the orphanage and we saw and there were two babies in each crib and 
they would literally come around and just kind of drop a bottle in and and that's what they got and so if if you think about it this nurturing that they get in the first weeks and months of life is hugely impactful and you know the hope is and I, we have seen kids where there was some neglect there was you know maybe not purposeful but but just mom was doing best she could but she wasn't in a great place um now if you add in like alcohol or drug use during pregnancy or you add in that there's a mental health issue in the family line you know genet so we're, we've got genetics we're dealing with we've got behavior we're dealing with and and then you've just got you know whatever the interaction is after that um my daughter just had a baby in july and this is her second and i mean just having gone through what we went through she's very proactive in attaching with this baby and sometimes she gets a little nervous she's like well i let him cry you know this long i said sweetie like if you are a b plus mom you're gonna do just fine yeah sometimes you're gonna he's gonna cry and i babysat him the other night and it took me 45 minutes to get him to sleep and he just wouldn't stop crying and i know i was doing everything right and he wasn't sick and there was nothing wrong he was just he's five months old and babies cry at five months old and they don't want to go to bed and you know but i i would only leave him for like five minutes then i'd go pick him up again and get him calm back down and tell him i was there and he wasn't alone and all of that kind of stuff my son didn't have any of that and you think about that for almost four years then all of a sudden you're thrust into this family where we're very loving and touching and and doing all the things and to him what what we came to realize was it was like his brain just because of the wiring of being wired around trauma his brain i think was almost on fire when we were doing the nurturing things it would cause him to want to do anything in his power to make us back off to make us get so he would do you know different behaviors that were really off-putting to try to manipulate us to get away from him because he just couldn't stand it and that's as a 13 year old myself entering foster care cutting class smoking doing all of the things to both get the attention and get them to not take me in. Like, don't get away right. from me, get away from me. And I, I remember so vividly thinking that it was both, you know, like, I do want your attention, but I want you to get away from me. And, and, you know, how as a 13 year old, you know, my mom had just passed away, you know, how, yeah. how do you like marry that in your head, you know? Yeah. Um, but, and I can tell it's, you this. That's hard for adults. And, right. and yet, <laughs> here you are a teenager or you're four years old or, it's a six month old, you know, who doesn't even have the language. You had some language, but your brain wasn't mature enough to process that much trauma and all the feelings going on. So you just act it out. Right. And that's, and this is so encouraging. This, this conversation is so encouraging because I have another friend who has a ministry, FASD Hope. And I remember her fighting tooth and nail 20 years ago and, you know, just saying, it's real. If you got to believe me, it's real. And it's not rare. It's real. And it's not yes. rare. And now I don't know if you know this, but there's a national um, class that's taking over the uh, foster care map class. Uh, RDTC um, or NDTC. I'm sorry. NDTC is what it's called. 
And the three main subjects are RAD, FASD, and NAS. And I, and when I heard that last week, Fantastic. I was like, yeah, like, they're catching on. They're getting it, you know? And that's like, yes, that's going to be a national program. Even, so. even if we don't have all of the tools to help yet, parents at least have to know what they are getting into when they sign up because you know how many churches have orphan sunday and like everybody can do your part do you have a room in your home do you have enough money like that's not the only requirement that you have a room in your home and that you're not living in poverty you know because what we really discovered also here's just another little tidbit about this is if parents have any unresolved trauma in their own life, the kids will find it and poke at it until you break. And we didn't know that. And so that's one thing, whenever I know somebody is about to adopt, it's like, you need to get in and you need to like take an ACEs test, adverse childhood experience. And if you have any of those that pop up or anything else that happened to you that you know like if somebody comes along and pokes you there, you're gonna get triggered. You need to work with a counselor and have them help you get that totally processed before you bring this little traumatized person into your home because you won't be able to handle it. I don't care how old, how, how old you are, how wise you are, how intelligent you are, it does not matter. It pokes at your most wounded place and you don't even know it's there half the time. I 100% agree. And that is where I, I was sharing with you before we started recording, you know, a teenager was placed in our county today and all day, like my chest is like hurt, you know, and I feel because I was, you know, I, I understand that transition. Yeah. And it's so funny how, you know, something from 30 years ago, you know, is, is still here. It's still well, and why that. you're doing what you're doing. And, you know, for me, I do what I do, but I also know where my limits are. And so I cannot work with children that have reactive attachment disorder because they trigger me too bad. It takes me right back there. I've healed up so much and I know where I'm healed, but there are certain things. It's like, I can talk to their parents all day as long as the parents not a manipulative person if they're trying to manipulate me i can't work with them and i won't but um yeah so it's interesting you have to know what what triggers you and i can help i can refer for those kinds of things it's not that i don't want to help i just know i can't i, I can't do it healthy boundaries that is that is all you know yeah. so much of our adult life is about healthy boundaries, you know, and, yeah. and what, knowing what you can do and what you can't. Exactly. So, and I mean, I'm assuming this is not just a foster care problem. This is not just an adoptive problem. And the reason that I asked about the, the first week is because our son was born with NAS. And because we weren't expecting the phone call, like we can only be at the hospital for a couple hours a day. And right. what we know is that NICU's, NICU nurses are phenomenal people, but they cannot hold the babies the whole time. And so these babies mm -hmm. are left in their um, cribs, essentially. And they have like the baby holders, which I don't think they do anymore because of COVID. But, you know, no baby holder came in except for one hour with our son. And so for, and he had to wear like a corrective helmet because the back of his head was flat. And I mean, and not to mention, like you said, 
he's away from his mom. Right. I'm not nor I'm not familiar. The nurses are not familiar. He's withdrawing. I mean, he's got like seizures and tremors and all the things, right? So he's sick, you know, and, and that's just that's horrific to, to spend the mm-hmm. first week of your life like that. Yeah. I mean, it just it like it blew well, us you know, away. I remember well, I don't remember, but I was told <laughs> when I was born, they thought that I was bleeding internally. And I actually wasn't, but they sent me over to the children's hospital. And I, the story was that I was there for a couple of days. Then I got my baby book. I was there for eight days. And my mom came for one feeding a day. And I remember, cause I was, this is, I found this all out while I was really struggling with my son. And I remember just thinking like the anxiety, even that I feel in my life about whether people are gonna leave and you know things like that that you get because you were in that position as a vulnerable baby. And God has healed a lot of that now. I mean, I don't feel that way anymore, but I remember thinking, man, if I feel this way from eight days, what must my son feel? And I just thought I am one drop in the bucket. He has an entire bucket of need. Like, how in the world can I meet that need? And since that time, adoptive and foster parents, so many times we think we're the savior. <laughs> we're not, um, just, to, just to remind you all, we are not. Jesus is the savior and we are just a, a flawed parent trying to do our best. And we hope that we make a difference, but ultimately it's up to God. It is not up to us and we're not the ones who are gonna make it all better. Exactly. Um, Jack, uh, Francis Chan, Francis Chan has a great YouTube segment on, on just that, that, you know, Jesus is the savior and all we are is just a picture of that. Like we're just, we're just trying to show you, this is what we received, you know? And right. and I, I love right. that you said that because that is 100, 100% true. Mm-hmm. Um, so what are some things for parents to look for if you suspect your child has read? Well, um, First of all, you're probably going to notice that they um, are not, uh, uh, you might think that they're attached, but some of them have a very insecure attachment. And so it's like, oh, they can't ever be away from me. Well, that's not healthy. (laughs) That is totally not healthy. (laughs) Um, Some people are like, oh, my son, he's not, he doesn't have an attachment disorder. He's really attached. That is not really attached. What a healthy attachment looks like is that like at the toddler age, kids can get down from you, go away, but they always wanna come back and get reassurance and you're their safe place and so they come back. And when they fall down, they want you to cuddle them. They want you to reassure them and kiss it and give them a Band-Aid and you know, talk about the owie for a minute and all of those kinds of things. Kids with reactive attachment disorder do the exact opposite. So, they fall down. I remember watching this in the orphanage. My son one time, like he, he fell down onto a cement floor, cracked his head and laid there and started laughing. And I remember thinking that is not a, an appropriate response. <laughs> like he either has a really high pain tolerance, but what we learned was in the orphanage, he would cry and nobody would come. So what, why bother? You just learn, nobody's gonna be there for you. So you, they are super independent. 
do not want anybody helping, will not take instruction, will be defiant, will, um, here's the thing I've heard over and over with Christmas coming up. Um, our son for birthdays and Christmas, he would want the gifts, but then when he got them, he would open the wrapping, but then he would either destroy it or he would not play with it. Whatever it was, it didn't matter. He would want it really badly. Then he'd get it and he would either break it or not play with it. And so there was no pleasing. Um, and, and the other thing is most parents with kids with RAD, that's not their only diagnosis. Most of them also have PTSD. Most of them also have something else. And so the challenge for these parents is, is this an attachment thing? Is this a trauma thing? Is this a behavioral thing? Is this a normal development thing? Is this one of the other disorders? Like, how do you even know how to start responding to some of these things? And what we learned as our son grew um, was that he knew where the line was on certain things, but we didn't, and he knew that we didn't. And so, for instance, he would do something that he wasn't supposed to do, and we would talk to him about it, and the big tears would come. You always blame me, and you never blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. And so then I'd start to feel guilty, like maybe he's really not capable of doing what I just asked him to do. But then there were other times that he would, I wouldn't make him do it, and I'd get this look. And all parents of kids with RAD know the look, because the child will look at you like you are the biggest idiot in the world, and they know they just took you, and you just realized it too, and there's nothing you can do about it. And so it's, it's just, oh, it's so, it's such a bizarre disorder. It's triangulating parents, to, which means you treat one one way and you treat one the other way and you try to get them off their feet so that they, they're never together on this because if you can keep them fighting and keep them um, disoriented with what's going on, then you're in control. Anything that you can do to control the family. So you have to control every movie that's watched, every food that is served, every everything. You're gonna have an opinion and if you, it's not your way, you're gonna cause a stink. Um, you're going to try to control all the other siblings. And for many, it can get dangerous. Um, there are times, our th I'm thankful our son was never violent, but let me tell you the stories that you might hear about Rad, they are true. I have had clients whose kids have tried to kill them, who have tried to burn their house down, who have tortured and killed pets, who have hurt other siblings. And um, thankfully ours was never like that. His was much more what I would consider covert, like the overt is where you're violent, you're mouthing off, you're refusing, it's very in your face kind of stuff. Our son was more covert. And what that meant was, it was very manipulative. And there was gaslighting. I don't know if you know that term, but it's like you start to make the other person feel like they're going crazy. Because, you know, it would be things like, he's got cookies on his mouth and the cookie jar lid is off. And I say, oh, did you have a cookie? I didn't have a cookie, you know? And so you start questioning your own, why do you always blame me? Well, you have crumbs down your face <laughs> and there's a trail from here to the cookie jar. But it, it gets to be more subtle than that to where I just remember like 
something was needed. I needed to take something to school for one of the kids. So at breakfast time, I would take it from upstairs, put it right by my purse. It would be there. It was supposed to be there when it's time to go. It's time to go. It's not there. Did you, did you move that? Why do you always think I did? So? Well, he did, but I could never prove it. And so the moms that I work with, they all feel like they're going crazy. And like I told you before, the counselors don't know about this. This was additional training they were all getting. When I went to graduate school, I went to two different universities and neither of them had anything on this. And I asked at both schools, where could I get a class on reactive attachment disorder, on attachment even? Oh, let's see. Well, you might be able to get something at the doctoral level. You might. So this is not being taught. The only people who know anything about it are people who have been through it themselves or who study it outside of a university system because it's not even it's not even being taught. So I guess that leads me to my next thing is, can you tell us the path to diagnosis and what does that look like? Well, thankfully I had a guy that knew something about this and he diagnosed for us and um, yeah, it's hard because it is kind of a bleak diagnosis. And so there are a lot of counselors and therapists who do not want to diagnose with RAD. They might even see it, but they won't diagnose it because they feel like they're sort of um, committing this child to a, a horrible future. But what they're not realizing is that the parents really need that diagnosis for their sanity and for to be able to get the right kind of help. So sometimes you're gonna hear ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder. Sometimes you're gonna hear DMDD, which is um, dysregulated mood something disorder. <laughs> I can't remember exactly what it is. And those are, there's a lot of similarities with RAD. So they'll skirt around the outside, but they won't really diagnose. So sometimes you have to find somebody who first of all believes it's real and is willing to diagnose so it can be a challenge you know you want to look for a psychologist probably more so than just a counselor unless that counselor has some experience with this um i do know of one gentleman who I've worked with some, and his name is Forrest Lean. It's L-I-E-N. He's a retired counselor. He actually had a group home that, uh, it was more like families that he would place these kids in. And it was very, it was really well received. And he was doing some really good work with these kids, um, but he's, he's since retired. And so now he does diagnose still. He'll And the way that you diagnose, there's a, a questionnaire, it's called the Randolph attachment questionnaire, something like that. Uh, it's the rad Q is what it's called. And um, he can, he can give that evaluation, that assessment to the parents. And what they do is they have mom fill out one and dad fill out one and then they compare because they're never the same because the child has triangulated so much that mom is always gonna almost always going to rate the child at a higher severity than dad is and he can help you figure out like if it's a more mild case of rad your numbers are lower you know that's when you can probably get counseling help and have in-home um you know outpatient 
kind of treatment where you're just going to counseling and the child is able to take that in, the more moderate to severe, you know, a lot of times these kids really don't do well staying in the home. They're, and this is what happened with us. We started recognizing he is not getting better. In fact, he's getting worse being in our home. The, the intimacy, the vulnerability of being in a family has him constantly triggered and he's constantly in fight or flight. Like he could go to a friend's house or he could go somewhere else and it would come down a little bit. But the minute he walked in our door, he, he would just, it was so bad and it started getting worse and worse. And, you know, puberty was around the corner and we were like, what are we going to do? Because by this point, our other two kids were avoiding family things. They, we always wanted to be the family that, you know, bring your friends, come hang out at our house. Well, nobody wanted to come to our house anymore. And our kids were like refusing to come for dinner. They didn't want to be at the table with him. They didn't want to go anywhere. We couldn't go anywhere. It was getting so bad. And so we see this with the more severe cases where the kids really don't do well in a home. We always think there's a home for every child and every child deserves to be in a home. Sometimes it's too intense for them and they actually, if, if we could place them in a safe, um, potentially like either a boarding school or a treatment facility or a group home or something, you know, and I think about that, it's like a group home is, is more typical to like what they grew up with in the orphanage and they actually, their brain feels more calm there and they're not being expected to have this, this type of relationship. It's more what we would call like a goods and services type relationship. Like you make your bed and get your clean clothes and we'll feed you lunch. And <laughs> that's kind of how it goes. And you're not expected to um, have a deep feeling relationship with anybody here. And some of the kids do better in that type of a place. Our son, we did find another family for him. And so he lived with us for eight years. He lived with them for about eight years and he's been on his own for about eight years. We keep track of him. We have some contact here and there, but it's all very goods and services oriented. And that's all he can do. And so we're like, okay, we kind of had to be in relationship on his terms because that's all he can do. So with families, you know, I would recommend Forrest. He's, he's one of the best in the nation. He's in Arizona right now. And he's got a, I think his website is lifespancounseling.com. But you can just Google him too. Um, but if you can find somebody else that can do this and diagnose, that's fantastic. I would recommend, there's a couple other things that I would recommend for you. Um, radadvocates.com. No, I'm sorry, that's a .org, radadvocates.org. They are an advocacy group. Uh, they are all rad moms who have been through it. And if you find you need some help, either through the legal system, through a school system, um, however you might need some, need some advocacy to help you deal with a situation, um, rad, Children with RAD are known to um, bring false allegations. Um, so if you find yourself in that kind of a spot, RAD advocates can 
save your hide there because they can go in and they know how to talk to lawyers and they know how to talk to judges and advocate and educate people on what this disorder does and why this child might be doing that. Um, there's another organization that's called radsibs.org. And this is a great organization to help your other children because what we have found is that um, the kid, the child who does not have the disorder can very much get overlooked in a family with a child with rad just like a, a child you know if you have a, a child with autism the other kids can get overlooked because <clears throat> you know they're not on fire and <laughs> their hair is not burning and you know they're not causing all kinds of chaos so they can kind of get overlooked and i i realized even as in my own childhood, I was what we would consider a glass child. That's what we call the kids who just kind of get overlooked in the home. I was the good kid and I knew I had better be the good kid because there was some other stuff going on in my home that drew all my parents' attention. And so radsibs.org is for the other kids and um, they're an amazing organization. And then our ministry also, you know, what our main goal of our ministry is to help parents of kids with attachment and trauma issues to deal with their own trauma and grief from parenting a traumatized child because it is traumatic to parent a traumatized child and most of us don't know that going in and so all of a sudden we have these well-intentioned parents who are just devastated and destroyed and we we help to help them normalize what has happened to them. And um, really it's, it's the grace of God and the healing of God working through us that just can bring healing and, and relief and redemption to these families. Wow, so that was my last question was, what support and hope can you give? Because that's, that's what we're all about. Yeah. And just to speak that, that what you're saying is true, yeah. I was in kinship care, I was in foster care, I was in therapeutic care, and where I shined from 16 to 21 was congregate care. If I made my bed and I towed the line, I I was gold. I was gold. Yeah. And that is one you And it gave you a chance so that you weren't blowing everything in your life so that when you finally were in adulthood you could make some good decisions going forward. You weren't in trauma all the time that you were there. Well, you know, here are some, some of the ways that our ministry helps. We do individual coaching and it's all via um, Zoom. We're actually switching over to a different platform coming up in January, but um, it's all online. We also have groups that run here and there. They're not going all the time, but when we have enough interested people we have a mom support group. We have a couple support group. We've also got a group running right now with um, radsibs.org. And so it's a, we run support groups for the siblings age eight to, thir uh, eight to 13. And boy, that is an amazing thing. Cause if we can get in there and help those kids to start having some good boundaries and self-awareness and be able to talk to their parents about their own needs, we're preventing a whole other generation of, you know, traumatized adults. Um, we also do, um, we've got blogs out there on our, our website, as well as our, one of the resources that I just love. Um, we, we call it connecting with the coaches and it, it's just a zoom, 
between me and the two other coaches and we talk about topics that our parent that our our group is telling us they want to hear about so we just recorded one today that we're calling like when you're re-traumatized through the system <laughs> so here you've got an adoptive mom who's already traumatized and then she goes to her counselor and the counselor doesn't believe her and the the school doesn't believe you and the church doesn't believe you and the lawyers don't believe you and blah 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 all of it on and on and on and so we had a really great discussion about that and those are all free on our website you can or on um, youtube you can go to carry o'toole ministries on youtube or go to carryotool.com and just look under the resources and you'll find connecting with the coaches we've got a bunch of those recorded and they're all just you know wow you've got three master's degrees or higher all studying attachment and trauma and let's just and we're also moms who have all been through this let's all sit around and have a conversation and just let people listen in so that's like some of the best training you can get but reach out if you need some help lord we thank you for carrie we thank you for her heart for families who have children who are in crisis we ask that you strengthen her ministry Help her bring your message of hope and healing to the families that she serves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.